Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. We are in the tail end of a sermon series called Guardrails, which details our church's values, the culture we hope to create. And we chose the word guardrails because what they do is they keep you safe. They keep you from venturing off where you don't want to go. And also it frees you up to move, to, to, to keep the momentum that you have. And so for our church, we came up with 10 guardrails, which are 10 statements that we hope to live by that, to keep us accountable to the people that we want to be and the church we want to, to be. And this week, uh, and I just want to say this, if you consider this your home church, if this is your community and haven't heard the previous messages, we really want to encourage you to do that because uh, you're going to hear and you're going to, to experience the church that we hope to be, and we need your help. We need your help in being that. So we really want to encourage you to listen to the messages uh, if, you haven't, if you haven't done that. So uh, the message for this week is, uh, the guardrail is, is simple, it's a simple message that's this. It says, we as a church, we're going to go to their turf on their terms. Their turf on their terms. And for us, what this is really about is, is recognizing that the default practice of the church is we try to have things, just like we're going to do next week, we have these experiences, and we hope that people come to it. You know, we hope that people come to our turf. So we're going to create experiences, and we're going to encourage people over and over again to bring people. And that's good. We want you to bring your friends here. But there's something that's more directly connected to following the way of Jesus, Because Jesus didn't ask for people to come where he was. He didn't wait for them to come to the temple that he built, where he established himself. Jesus was on the move. He met people where they were. He met them on their turf, in their place of life, in their environment, in their needs. Jesus did this over and over again. And Jesus also didn't set the terms for relationship. He he didn't say, uh, I'm going to come to you once you believe what I believe, Once you look like the way I look like or talk like I talk, Jesus met with people on their turf, on their terms, to do something great. And one of the reasons why this is so important for us to to figure out as a church is because we are existing in a major shift in culture in this day and age in America. The church used to have an automatic place of respect and authority and prominence in American culture. A lot, of, a lot of the ways in which people saw the church was the church at one point was the center of all social and religious and cultural life in America. I even was visiting with an older pastor some time back in seminary, and he just told us it's not the same way it used to be. And almost with a sadness in his voice, he, he missed the day when a pastor's role was automatically respected in culture where all you had to do to bring people to church was just to have a larger steeple than the church next to you, which we failed because Bannockburn is, you know, in this, we're at a middle school. So it's, we're already missing on that. But back then, the question wasn't if necessarily you identified as Christian, but which church do you attend? And if you've seen any of the statistics over the last five decades, the experience of church and, the, and, and the, the likelihood that people are participating in the life of church has continued to plummet. Some sociologists describe American culture nowadays as that we live in a post-Christian society, that we're past that. And if that is true, then we as a community 
we need a different way of being. We can't continue to expect that the church holds its role in our society as it does now and expect to have the same kind of influence and impact in our community as we once had. We need to think of a different way. And I think the church must recapture the way of Jesus, and we must go. And this guardrail is meant to remind us of that, that following the way of Jesus, we're going to go. We're going to go and meet people on their turf and on their terms. It's a, it's a reversal of the way that the church existed decades ago. And there's no better way to explain this guardrail than looking at the, uh, an encounter that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. It's something important for you to know. This section of the Gospels, uh, according to Luke, is known as the Gospel to the Outcast. There's a whole section of uh, this account of Jesus' life written through uh, Luke where he talks about how Jesus went to the outcast. He met them on their turf and their terms. And so we're going to look here at Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. So what do we know of tax collectors, those who might know ancient history or biblical uh, background? is Well, when Rome would conquer places like Israel, they would want money. They want taxes. Uh, So what they would do is they would impose the taxes on these new citizens. But Rome was unfamiliar with their culture, with their language, with their community, their customs. And so what they would do is they would lease out or they would hire out someone from within that culture, a native to that place, to be the tax collector. And they would ensure that Rome would get the taxes that they wanted. And then someone like Zacchaeus, he could also collect more for himself. So Zacchaeus was a member of the Jewish community, but he was taking money from his, his brothers and sisters and giving it to the exploiter, the one who conquered Israel. In Rome, they really didn't care much about the tax collectors, how much they took. And so you could see that there's an incentive for greed, for exploiting your neighbors. And so because of that, these tax collectors, they were absolutely despised. They were hated in their community. They were seen as traitors. And something interesting about this passage is we find here in Zacchaeus, he's the chief tax collector. This is the first time we, we've, the only time we see this in the Gospels, that someone in this role of power and prominence, even among the tax collectors, he must have been the most hated person that people knew in that community. And in the midst of his wealth, and in the midst of his power, Zacchaeus had a deep need. Verse 3, he wanted to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see him over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore tree to find him, to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. This kind of paints a, more of a picture about Zacchaeus. Not only was he despised and maybe greedy, and this tax collector, but what else was he? Short. I need to confess something. I, too, have been a wee little man in my life. I'm not anymore, as you can tell. I'm a grown man, prominent, <laughs> powerful. But I mean, I remember middle school, oh man, I was so small. Uh, anyone else had that experience where like puberty was way too late? Way, way too late. So in middle school, I decided to play football because I love football. And I remember I showed up for the first day of seventh grade football and the coach was like, really? 
really? Uh, you want to pass out water? We're like, is there anything else you can do? Like, they put me, I was like three foot five or something like, something like that. And they had, they literally had a quarter. I was, I started, I started zero quarter, which is before the game, they have a whole quarter called zero quarter. You'd play a whole quarter and they'd zero out everything, and they start the real game. I started zero quarter, people. I was that good. I was so small. I remember, like, the, the equipment didn't even fit my body. Like, the, the helmet, like, just rested on my shoulder pads. So, like, I would run, and it's nothing is connected, you know, which is great because you can, like, look out the ear hole and see <laughs> who's coming. I was so, so small. And it's a funny thing. Uh, being a wee little person, I, I think this is a common experience is there's two different temptations that people experience when they are that. One is to hide, and the other one is to get big. And you can get big in a bunch of different ways. And I just wonder, as I think about Zacchaeus's life, of why would he take this despised role? Well, he's all of a sudden powerful. Everyone knew him. He was prominent. He had wealth. Maybe all that to make up for the stature what else we might imagine about Zacchaeus is he probably was also really, really lonely. He probably didn't have many friends. And probably the friends that he did have were the other outcasts, the people weren't, who weren't invited to the normal gatherings, the other outsiders. And when I think about Zacchaeus, I also think of his own sense of like identity. I think he probably struggled with that. Am I Roman now? Or am I still a part of the Israel community? Who am I? I think he struggled with that. I wonder if he felt like he sold his soul. It's all for wealth, all for greed. And when I think about Zacchaeus, I think that, that he perhaps walked with a cover of power and a cover of shame. And this cover of shame, he probably gave him a new name. Probably People probably called him by a different name, that he was a traitor. He was greedy. Even a wee little man, people in the community taught their kids to sing songs about how wee little man he was. You might have been taught them too. <laughs> Yet in the midst of this social and spiritual brokenness, Zacchaeus had a longing. He was compelled to see Jesus. I think that Zacchaeus had a glimmer of hope, enough to climb a tree because he longed for something more. And what might have compelled Zacchaeus to do this weird feat of climbing up a sycamore tree just to see Jesus, just to see him? Why would he climb this tree? I think he heard about Jesus. I think along the way he heard that Jesus would often go to the people that were not included in the religious community, especially not the religious elite. And so maybe Zacchaeus started hearing stories about how Jesus went to the undetestable and befriended and met them. Even his disciples, most of them were not some powerful people. They weren't the A-list. They're common, ordinary people. They were fishermen. And then one day, Zacchaeus even heard that one of them, a man named Matthew, one of his disciples, even he was a tax collector. And Jesus came to him one day as he was collecting taxes and said, you, I want you I want you to follow me. And when Zacchaeus heard that, he began to wonder, what kind of Messiah would that be? I want to see this. So when he heard that, Zac that Jesus was coming through his town, he wasn't going to let the crowd stop him. 
He wasn't going to have this awkward interaction with the community that despised him, hold him back. He was going to see Jesus, even if it took him to climb a tree. He was going to see this Jesus. Hope can do a lot of things. It can make you do a lot of things. It can drive you up a tree, all to see Jesus. In verse 5, when Jesus reached this spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. And what did Jesus say? How dare you? How dare you take from your brother and sister and give it to Rome? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Why have you betrayed all of us? You greedy, wee little man. Shame on you. Shame on you. No, that's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus said these shocking words. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I'm going I'm to stay at your house today. Out of all the different things Zacchaeus probably expected to hear, all, that, all the script that he probably expected to hear, he probably did not expect, Zacchaeus, I didn't need an Evite. I'm coming to your house right now. I don't care what you have scheduled. I'm coming to your place today. And so, verse 6, Zacchaeus, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. That's what we do with grace. We try to welcome it gladly. As shocking as this was to Zacchaeus, I promise it was just as shocking to the crowd that when Jesus made this public statement. So, of course, verse 7 happens, and all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Jesus gives us a beautiful picture of grace here. In the most surprising turn of events, Jesus goes to the hated, the despised, the greedy, the traitor, and asks to be invited to his home, to his turf. You see, in Zacchaeus' culture, to be asked to, be, to sit at the table with someone is to say, I'm ready to be in relationship with you, an intimate relationship, an intimate friendship with you. So Jesus is saying more than just, I need a place to crash, or I'd like to cool off or eat. What Jesus is saying is, I want you to know me, and I want to know you, and I want everyone here to know that I'm not afraid of that. And why was this so important? I just think, what if Jesus had this short interaction with Zacchaeus at the base of this tree? What if Jesus would have just said, hey, I'm going to teach you like what repentance is, or I'm going to teach you what grace is, and Jesus had this microwaved little interaction, this short little interaction, and Jesus moved on. What would have been missing from this? I think what would have been missing is Zacchaeus would have had this memory with Jesus, but Zacchaeus probably would have always wondered if, what if Jesus really knew me? What if what if he really knew who he is talking to? Would he receive me then? Would he invite me to follow him then? What if Jesus really knew my life, really knew my friends, really knew my self-centeredness and what the creed provided for me? Would he still forgive? Would he claim me then? So instead of this short interaction at the base of this tree, Jesus says, I want to go to your home and I want, I want to know all of you. And I want you to know all of me. So most of us think, to some degree, that God just wants to know just the, just the very top layer of us. We try to act happy. We just give the happy prayers to Jesus. But what we see here is that Jesus wants to know all of you. And in doing so, that you can know all of him. 
Jesus leads with grace. Jesus' grace goes all the way in first. It goes to his home. It goes to his friends. It goes to his community. It goes all the way in. So from all the way in the depths of that personhood, there could be transformation from the inside out. And if you read this story, the surprise for me as I read it and processed it this past week is Jesus never told Zacchaeus he was wrong. He never gave him an ultimatum. He never even offered forgiveness. What did he offer? He offered friendship. He offered a personal relationship. And based on that gracious invitation by Jesus, salvation came to Zacchaeus' home. And while at Zacchaeus' home, maybe with a motley crew of friends around his table, this moment happens, and this is verse 8. Zacchaeus then stood up, and although they couldn't tell he stood up, he probably stood up on like a step stool or something so they could all see him. And then he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. Half. He gives half of his possessions, everything he has. Half of it's now going to the poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. On this day, Zacchaeus gives half of his possessions to the poor, and he, he was willing to pay back four times the amount that which he cheated. And the thing that's powerful about this is four times the amount was indicating Zacchaeus's perspective. A tip, in the Old Testament, restitution, you would be asked to give 20% back. Give back what you took and then 20%. But here in the Old Testament, the Old Testament shares that when you have stolen from someone, outright cheated someone, you give them four times the amount. So what Zacchaeus is doing here in front of everyone, it's an act of confession. It's an act of confession. And out of this, Jesus then says in verse 9, Today, salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. What was so important about Zacchaeus' desire to give his money away? What, what, what was so powerful that Jesus makes this declaration? Well, you have to think Zacchaeus, in this moment, he's turning his life around. Zacchaeus is God. Up to this moment was money, it was power, it was control, it was greed. And here in this moment, Zacchaeus is letting it go. Half of everything I have, I'm giving it up. And I'm going to make it right from all those people I've stolen. What you're seeing here is Zacchaeus is turning from his old life, and he's turning to a new life. Transformation has, ha has happened. It's been a de demonstration of his freedom. He's been set free from that old life. Don't get this story wrong. Salvation wasn't purchased by Zacchaeus. Grace had already plopped itself down at the table next to him. This is the response of someone who has been set free. This is the fruit of salvation. And notice what Jesus does in this verse right here to seal this experience of grace. What does he do? He makes this public declaration. Today, salvation has come to this house. But then what he does is something powerful. It's something maybe you could look over. But he gives Zacchaeus a new name. Because this is a son of Abraham. What's important to understand about this is uh, generations and generations ago, God had this encounter with this man named Abraham. And, and even though Abraham was incredibly old, 
and he was childless, God made a promise to Abraham that, that your children would be numerous. And to make this memory happen, God walked Abraham outside and, and had him see the vastness of the stars. And, and God promised Abraham, you see all the stars? As numerous as these stars are, so will your children be. And from that point on, the Jewish community, they would pride themselves being sons and daughters of the promise. They would pride themselves on being sons and daughters of Abraham. But especially the group that prided themselves on that was the religious elite, the Pharisees, those who were the most in. They knew that they were the sons of Abraham. And then the great reversal, and Jesus is always surprising, Jesus never utters those words to any of those Pharisees, any of the elite. And instead, he walks to someone like Zacchaeus and says, you are a son of Abraham. And what that might have meant to Zacchaeus is, I know that you've been called a traitor, and I know you've been called greedy, and I know you've been told that you've sold yourself out and you're no longer a part of this community, but I'm looking at you right now, and you're mine. You're mine. You're a child of the promise. Just think of what that must have done to Zacchaeus' soul that day. Just think of the freedom that must have burst forth from his heart to be claimed by God in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his need. And the identity that was given to him by his whole community and probably the one that he was okay with, Jesus plucks that out from his heart. He says, I'm giving you a new name. You're a son of Abraham. You're a son of the promise. And what I love about that picture is for us, I, I love imagining what Abraham saw when he saw the vastness of the stars and the promise of the children. But I think about also when God looked up with Abraham and saw the stars. I think he saw the least likely up there. I think he saw Zacchaeus. And I think he saw you. And I think he saw me. This is so important for us to know, this experience as we see Jesus interact with Zacchaeus. This is so important for us to know. Because for us as a church, as we live in a post-Christian culture, a post-Christian society, we might go, what in the world are we called to do? What are, what are we going to do as a church? Well, friends, what we're going to do is what we always do. We're going to follow Jesus. We're going to follow Jesus because we don't have time to bemoan what it used to be and look back and daydream about what it could have been. We are too busy following Jesus, who is meeting people on their turf in their terms. One of the last things that Jesus told his followers after his crucifixion, after his death, after his resurrection, he came to his followers. He wanted to give them some last words, some important words. And one of those last words in John 20, 21 is this. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. So Jesus is saying, you've seen how I live my life. You've seen how the Father has sent me, how he sent me to people's turf on people's terms. And Jesus is saying, as you have seen that in me, now I'm sending you. Go. Go, church. Go into this world. Go on their turf and on their terms. This is our call. This is what we're called to do. And especially for us as a church, as a vine, this is what we're going to be about. One of my friends, uh, his name is Ryan. Ryan Hammett, he's one of my dear friends. That's Ryan right there. 
Uh, this is at, on a camping trip. He doesn't always look this beautiful. Um, but Ryan, I love Ryan. He's a good friend of mine. He was a youth. Uh, he worked with youth for a while. And he had an, uh, we were talking sometime back, and he told me a story. And I was like, oh, this is a perfect illustration of going on their turf on their terms. He would start this uh, youth group. And so what do you do when you start a youth group? You do the super awkward thing. As a grown man, you show up to high school and start trying to make friends. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And so he went to, there's this group of skaters. He went to them uh, and started, hey guys, what's up? I'm Ryan. And he's like, not the most like, he, he kind of looks like a dad. He's always kind of looked like a dad. He always dressed like a dad. And uh, so he showed up in the skater crew and there's one guy who was like less rude than everyone else. So he's like, that's my kid. His name was Killian, and he, which is a great name for a skater kid. And so he said, you know, so he, every single day that week, he went to see Killian. And he said on Friday, he asked the magical question, hey, so Killian, what are you doing this weekend? So oh, I'm going to, this was in College Station. He said, I'm going to go to a concert. It's in Houston of this punk rock band. You should come. And Zach, uh, Ryan was like, oh, okay, cool, great, great. I got plans. And so anyways, they had this interaction. They left. And then as he was at home that night, he was talking to his friends. Like, what are we doing tonight? And they didn't have any plans. And Ryan goes, huh, what if? A lot of good things happen when you ask the question, what if? What if? Hey, guys, let's go to a concert, Houston. And then I go, okay, so they go. And Ryan said, I, was like, I don't even know if Killian was going to be there. It seemed expensive, timely, but I'm just going to go. So they drove down to Houston for this, you know, punk rock band concert, show up to, at this shoop, like super sketchy, shady club. And it, there's the line trying to go in. As Ryan was walking up, uh, he makes eyes with Killian, and Killian just... He just looks super confused, and he says the really, this is what you say to a youth pastor when you see him out in public. What the are you doing here? And he said it over and over and over again. And Ryan said, well, I'm, I'm here because you invited me. What the are you doing here? And after it kind of calmed down, it got normal, and then they went into the concert, and Ryan said he spent the night moshing with all of these high schoolers. <laughs> On Monday, Ryan goes back to the school, again, to make friends, even though he was a grown man with a bunch of high schoolers. And he sees Killian, Killian runs up to him. And uh, Killian says to Ryan on Monday, he's like, I can't believe you showed up. I can't believe you showed up. I've been telling all of my friends, all the kids around here, the Jesus guy showed up. <laughs> and Ryan was like, you don't have to call me the Jesus guy. And he's like, no, but I can't believe it. And uh, Tuesday night happens, and they had their club. And uh, when Ryan got up to speak, don't you know who was in the back row? It was Killian with all of his friends. And afterwards, Ryan goes up to him and kind of asks the Christian version of the same question of, what are you doing here? And uh, Killian says, I I'm here because you're here. And, uh, you know, for me... When I think about that, I, I know it's a silly thing to go to a punk concert, um, but for, for Ryan and Killian, they forged a friendship. Ryan took Killian to camp that summer, and Killian started walking with Jesus. And it all happened because he just, what if? What if I just show up to a concert tonight? 
What if I just show up on, not on my terms, on my terms, what if I go to a punk concert I don't want to go to, and I mosh with kids I don't want to, and in the midst of like this hot topic mosh pit of all these high schoolers, and there's one guy in Old Navy cargo shorts, <laughs> and they're moshing, you know, like Jesus was there. You know, like the Jesus guy was there. And it was more than just the Jesus guy. It was like the presence of Jesus was there. I just forget sometimes that, I know we say this often, but we just need to feel the weight of it. Sometimes we're the only Jesus that people see. And it's not a good thing when the only place that people see Jesus, people is at church. People need to see Jesus in their homes, in their environments, in their workplaces, on their turf, and on their terms. That's what people need. So for us as a church, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to wait for people to show up here. We're going to go. We're going to show up in people's lives. We're going to show up to the bands, the concert that our coworker is playing in that we really don't want to go to. We're going to show up when our neighborhood kid has a t-ball game. We're going to show up with posters and cheer them on. We're going to show up to birthday parties we really don't want to be at. We're going to show up in people's lives when there's need, when our friend is in the hospital. We're going to show up. Why? Because Jesus said to go. And maybe, just maybe, if we do that, maybe they'll get woven into this community. A community of grace of people who've been found by Jesus. People who have experienced it. For those note takers, I just want to just send, send you off with four things just to know that as we see in the story of Jesus. Real quick, this is what the story, this story of Jesus' interaction with Zacchaeus can teach us of how we're going to do this. Because we want to get down to the practical of how we're going to do this. First off, the first step of showing up in people's turf and terms is we have to notice them. The only reason why this moment happened between Jesus and Zacchaeus was that Jesus was attentive. He actually had a crowd around him and he was attentive enough to go, there's a little man in the tree. Is that normal around here? And to say, Okay, I'm coming to your house. It began by Jesus being attentive, and I wonder how many moments of opportunities have just rolled away from me like a cloud floating above me that I didn't see because I wasn't attentive. I wasn't attentive enough to see the person who's my waiter not having a good day or the person pushing the stroller next to me. I'm not attentive enough, enough to see the parent cheering in the stand next to me or the person in the coffee shop we happen to go to often. But Zacchaeus' life was changed forever because Jesus noticed. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to be bold. We're going to be bold. I thought about renaming the sermon, The Bold Imposing Nature of God's Love. Because God's love is bold and it imposes. It shows up and it lingers longer than we feel comfortable with it. It imposes on us. And what Jesus did was bold. To say to someone, hey, I'm coming to your house, not tomorrow night, but now. How about now? Is now good for you? And we see this boldness. And I think many of us, we want to love people, but we don't want to be bold. We're afraid of being bold, of stepping over lines, or maybe just ruining a reputation that we have. What I love about Jesus is he cared more for relationships than reputation. He was willing to step in boldly. And I think he did that because he knew who he was. He wasn't afraid of rejection. He knew who he was. And so may it be for us. 
The third thing he did was he entered their world. Jesus went to be a part of Zacchaeus' world. As we talk around this table here, we talk about Jesus being the master of the banquet. Another thing Jesus was, he was a guest at the table. It wasn't only, the, he, he didn't have to have control over the situation. He showed up in people's life. And the fourth thing that we're going to be called to do is uh, we're going to call out people's true name. Once we know and receive God's love, once we've experienced that in the midst of people's life that's already present, then we bless them. We call them to be who they really were, just like Jesus did with Zacchaeus. That in the light of God's love, you have value. You are worthy just the way you are. And why we do this is Jesus summarizes his whole ministry in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's it, guys. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus still sends us to seek and save the lost. Jesus' life demonstrating an, demonstrated an unwavering passion that God's presence would go into this world to seek people out like it was a lost treasure, something you'd flip the house upside down to find again. This is how you are in God's eyes, and this is how other people are in God's eyes. Jesus didn't wait for them to find him. He went after them. And so maybe today, you might have a need like Zacchaeus had. Maybe you're here, and you're like, I'm not ready to go because I don't know if I've been found. Maybe today, you, maybe you showed up at a middle school with enough curiosity to drive Zacchaeus up a sycamore tree. And I just want to tell you that Jesus doesn't want you to clean yourself up before you enter in a relationship with him. He doesn't want you to get your act together before you step into a life with him. That Jesus still seeks and saves you, and he's coming to you on your turf to give you love. But once you've experienced that love, and friends, if you're in this room and if you've experienced that grace and that love, once you've experienced it, albeit in a sycamore tree or when you were 10 years old or in your home when you were praying by yourself or even in a middle school auditorium, then your call is to follow Jesus, to notice people, to be bold, to show up in their turf, in their terms, and then call out their true name. By the grace of God, show them who they are. And if we do so, we might find children who have been promised to be chosen by God, and we get to welcome them home. Their turf, their terms. That's how we're going to be as a church.